Hello everyone and welcome to this BGSM podcast. My name's Adam Weir. I'm a member of the editorial team here at BJSM, and more importantly, a longtime colleague and friend of Robert Chan DeFoss. Uh, Robert Chan, do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners before we uh, start off on this monster podcast? <laughs> yeah, thank you very much, Adam. And uh, yes, my name is Robert Chan DeFoss. I'm a sports physician in uh, the Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam, and I'm also associate professor uh, working on uh, on sports injuries and mainly on uh, on tendinopathies. Mainly on tendinopathies. Yeah, we've been working together, I reckon, for like uh, at least 15 years now. Uh, you were a med student and I was still training in sports medicine. And even back then you were doing research on the Achilles. So I can't think of anyone better to do the podcast with today. And we've done a podcast before, or a couple actually, that have been based around a single article. But today is like the bumper bonus podcast because we've got a whole guideline to cover um, and maybe before we jump in, like the deep dive on the content, it might be good to discuss the, what is a guideline, a little bit about the process, because lots of readers will be familiar, I think, with a, the idea of a, a systematic review. Uh, but this is like next level. So perhaps you want to just run us through the, the idea of a, a guideline. Yeah, so uh, since sports medicine in the Netherlands is uh, recognized as a medical specialty, uh, we also have the opportunity to uh, have funding for uh, to develop clinical guidelines. And uh, around two years ago, we did a successful proposal uh, for Achilles tendinopathy, so to improve management in this field. Uh, and this multidisciplinary guideline includes a development commentary and authorization phase. And all, in all phases, patients uh, were involved. Um, so what we do uh, is, well, in, in, in the first part, it's quite similar to the process of a systematic review. Uh, so we also performed a comprehensive search and also selection and extraction of articles. And we appraised the certainty of the evidence, all things we do with systematic reviews. Um, but I think the main difference with the guideline development is that we... Uh, do not only assess the scientific evidence, uh, but we also use important considerations for making our recommendations. Uh, so we also include patient values, costs of specific interventions, the acceptability of other stakeholders, uh, and also feasibility of a specific intervention. Yeah, so that that sets it apart from a review in the, the sense it's got the, the, the considerations in there as well. Um, I don't know if you have a, a concrete example of how that works. So you, you're going from evidence to practice, like with a with a consideration. Yeah, so it could be that uh, for a specific intervention, there's well, only low level evidence that this has uh, well potentially some clinical benefits for the patients. So there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and then I think it's good uh, to also consider well the patient values. Uh, is it an invasive treatment? Are there any complications that we have to be aware of? Uh, are there high costs? Uh, so we also have to look uh, it from uh, a societal perspective. Uh, so I think taking into account these considerations based on a shared decision-making model, I think uh, yeah, that, that will really help in, in uh, yeah, the clinical practice. Yeah, great. And you, you mentioned that patients were involved from the start. Um, I know that's 
a subject that's upcoming in uh, in medicine in general and in sports medicine as well. You want to just expand on that slightly, as in in what way a patient's been involved in the, in the project. Yeah, so uh, when starting this guideline development, we first uh, look into the most important questions that are relevant uh, in, in the clinical context. And also patients are involved in that specific phase. So uh, we also ask patients what their problems are in the, the whole process uh, of their Achilles tendinopathy and the management of it. Uh, so already there, we uh, have a lot of input and, and uh, also... Um, well, uh, make the process of the guideline that the, the framework is already uh, designed uh, there uh, together with patients. Uh, but also when we assess the literature and make our recommendations, we ask patients uh, what they think of our recommendations and uh, also how their values are regarding a specific uh, recommendation or a consideration. And I think the the... That, that's a real benefit compared to perhaps how things used to go in the past. I think for listeners in the UK, then they're probably familiar with the with the NICE guidelines, which are the clinical guidelines in the UK. Just quickly, is this process similar to the NICE kind of process? Yeah, I've, I've looked into the differences and I only discovered, uh, well, some slight differences, but they're more or less the same, uh, these processes, as the, 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 the Dutch guideline we have here. Uh, yeah. yeah, great. So that, that's a little bit of the background to it. Uh, and maybe you just want to explain to us how long it took. Uh, um, yeah, so it was quite some work. So uh, I can recall we started in uh, the end of 2019 and uh, the guideline has been published uh, in the uh, in the Netherlands, I think, uh, by the end or by the beginning, no, no, halfway 2021. So I think it took us almost one and a half year. Yeah, the whole process. Yeah, with with the whole team, and then yeah, we've translated it into English, and it's in the BGSM now for the listeners. If you're listening to the podcast, we, we hope you're inspired to have a look. The article is open access. The main article is only 10 pages long. So you've got 18 months of work uh, condensed into 10 pages. But you'll see that there's a supplementary file, 291 pages. So I think that reflects really the the amount of work uh, that's gone into to this guideline. Um, so we'll draw the, the like that introduction session to a close and then move on to talk about risk factors and primary prevention. I think risk factors is something that fascinates both clinicians and patients. I would say in my experience, the majority of patients who come to see us will have some kind of idea about their risk factors. It's to do with how flat their feet are, they wore the wrong running shoes, uh, they they trained like they built up their distance too much too soon. You name it, um, and so I'm really curious to to get your thoughts then as to what you found when reviewing the literature to, on risk factors. Yeah. So first of all, it's what I recognize in clinics. So that uh, I hear a lot of thoughts about potential risk factors. But if we look at the literature, and we found quite some articles. Uh, that assess the potential risk factors for Achilles tendinopathy. And 
uh, we only found a number of modifiable risk factors. Uh, and uh, there was only limited evidence for these. But the ones we found uh, were uh, quinolone antibiotics, uh, training during cold weather and also decreased plantar flexor strength. Uh, and there was also limited evidence for an abnormal gait pattern. Uh, so this was a decreased forward progression of propulsion and also a more lateral foot rollover. And if, if you then take that back to the patient's perceptions, often the, you know, the shape of their feet, for example, that's something I hear a lot in practice. Is, has that been looked at and that's been disproven or that's just never been looked at? Uh, yeah, uh, there were some articles uh, showing that this is a risk factor, but others uh, proved that it was not. So there's some conflicting evidence for some of these uh, risk factors or for some of these potential risk factors. So, um, uh, yeah, I think at least what we can state is that there is no uh, clear evidence that this is associated with uh, an yeah. onset of Achilles tendinopathy. And I've seen in practice not many cases, but the, the quinolone antibiotics, uh, for example, I think the most common one will be ciprofloxacin. So that's a proven risk factor, but perhaps not so common in, in practice. Um, that comes back again in the prevention section. But the plantar flexion strength, that's something that would be potentially modifiable like the gait patterns. You want to just speak a little bit to that? Yeah, so I think then we uh, progress to the well, the prevention strategies. And um, this is something that we uh, advised. Uh, but uh, on the other end, there's one uh, preventive intervention study in football players showing that uh, there was no preventive effect of uh, eccentric exercises uh, of the calf muscles uh, during the season. Um, so... Well, this, from this data, you would consider not to include uh, strengthening exercises as prevention. Uh, but on the other hand, we uh, thought as working group that it might be uh, potentially uh, uh, beneficial to perform strengthening exercises before you start a season or before you start a certain load. So that's the reason why we did advise to uh, perform specific uh, preventive ex exercises. So drilling down on that, then it it basically means that you would then consider prevention pre-season or pre-sports loading rather than in-season prevention. Yeah, true. So uh, we thought that it's uh, if you do it in-season, then it well sums up to the total load you already have during that season. And we thought that it was... Uh, well, from the perspective of gradually increasing loads, it, it could be beneficial to prepare the tendon for that load before starting the season. Yeah. So that's one very concrete thing that's recommended in the guidelines. So start your work pre-season to prepare your body. And now with, we're jumping, I think, already a bit from risk factors to primary prevention. Yeah. Um, so what other things came to the forefront then in, in the recommendations for primary prevention? Um, well, I think to come back to that abnormal gait pattern, so there was only limited, that was only a limited risk factor. And uh, we also observed that prescribed 
uh, inlays did not have a, a preventive effect uh, on Achilles tendinopathy. Uh, so for that reason, we did not include this in the recommendations. This is also because uh, there are also costs involved in this uh, intervention and uh, also with the uh, limited evidence it had uh, in the risk factor assessment, we thought it was not necessary to uh, provide it as a general recommendation for every patient coming into uh, a clinic for a preventive advice. Uh, any other practical recommendations then that you came up with as a working group on primary prevention? Yeah, so uh, we also considered uh, yeah, optimizing a training program, so a more gradual progression of training load over time as a recommendation. Um, and yeah, this is more based on clinical experience and, and I think it also is common sense uh, at this stage. Um, and then just to like dive into that a bit more, I'm guessing that would be different for, say, a football player versus a, a running athlete that you got to kind of tailor it to that specific sport. Yeah, yeah, it, uh, it is yeah, really depends on the type of training and uh, uh, also yeah, the type of sports you would like uh, to perform to. Yeah. Uh, so uh, really agree that it really depends on the individual. Yeah. yeah. So we've got uh, calf muscle strengthening. Uh, a gradual build-up of the load and anything else for the, the primary prevention? Yeah, so one other that we um, uh, also advised was to, um, uh, in, in training during cold weather, we advised to war wear warm clothing. <laughs> it's very, it seems very, we're, we're here in Holland, for those of you, just to give the context, we just walked across from the hospital to the studio to do the recording in the pouring rain and freezing cold so <laughs> that seems very suitable for today uh, yeah 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 for sure and um, yeah, th this is because uh, we uh, identified uh, cold weather training as one of the risk factors and wearing warm clothing yeah, is really feasible easy to implement uh, so we consider this as uh, one of the recommendations great so three practical uh, advices for daily practice for prevention so let's hope that that will prevent lots of Achilles tendinopathy, but we live in the clinical world where we see patients uh, with complaints, where let's say primary prevention has failed, and that, bring, that, that, that will link us nicely, I think, to the next section of the, the guideline. So we move on to the, the idea then of making the diagnosis, and the, yeah, I guess as people working in practice will start with the, the, the clinical diagnosis of Achilles tendinopathy. Um, there's some really clear guidance given in the guideline and perhaps you want to run us through how you got to these clinical diagnostic criteria. Yes, we, we first performed a search with the aim to define uh, the diagnostic criteria for Achilles tendinopathy. But the major problem with this approach was that there is no gold standard. Um, so we were struggling a bit with that uh, and therefore we decided to choose another strategy and we extracted all eligibility criteria from a pre-selected group of randomized controlled trials in this field and with the method uh, we had a good impression what researchers think as most important diagnostic criteria um, and the four criteria came up uh, most frequently these were the localized pain in, on the Achilles tendon, 
uh, an association with loading, uh, thickening of the tendon and palpation pain. So these were found most often in these RCTs. Uh, and this was also fitting with our clinical experience. Uh, experience. Yeah. yeah, and when, when you say localized pain, that's as in that's where the patient says it hurts. So when you're doing your history, you ask them to show you where they feel the pain and they're localizing the pain to the Achilles tendon. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so that's really clear. So you've got the, the, the location of the symptoms, the fact the pain is getting worse on loading, then there can be thickening of the tendon on clinical examination and pain on palpation. So I think that's something that yeah we can all take home and, and use easily for uh, for clinical practice. How about um, if we'd make the, the 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 differentiation between insertional or mid portion? Have you made a, a distinction between the two? Yeah, so classically we uh, divide these into the first two centimeter of the insertion versus uh, two to seven centimeter uh, above that insertion as the mid portion region. Uh, so yeah, that's where we make that distinction. And we also define these as two uh, separate entities because they will be treated differently uh, in the end uh, also yeah. when we discuss this uh, further in the guideline. Okay, and then, I mean, in clinical practice, I think we've got then clear clinical criteria uh, for making the diagnosis. Uh, sometimes there may be other things going on, and I don't want to like take steal your thunder here. But when should we, as a healthcare provider, perhaps think that there's more to this than just a a, a simple? Simple is maybe the wrong word, but more than just a normal Achilles tendinopathy. Um, yeah, I think we, we you're more thinking about a, a differential diagnosis in that part, or um, yeah, and also whether or not there could be an underlying health condition that's then causing the Achilles tendinopathy. Yeah, yeah. So once the this diagnosis uh, is established, you still have to think about underlying pathologies. And I think two of these diagnoses you don't want to miss, uh, and these are the enthesitis uh, related to auto-inflammatory rheumatic diseases, and also tendon xanthomas as a part of a familial hypercholesterolemia. I've got two two scrubble words there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to talk us through then how we as clinicians may be alerted to tendon xanthoma or an enthesitis. Yeah, so for the enthesitis, it's uh, uh, when there's a positive family history of rheumatic diseases. Uh, it's a young patient with also chronic low back pain uh, or if there is also presence of psoriasis uh, as a skin disease, uh, then you have to be, uh, well, uh, have to make sure that, uh, well, there's not something else going on than uh, well, uh, an overload tendinopathy, which is yeah. a more mechanical problem. Uh, and this inflammatory problem, I think uh, in, in Holland, we are used to refer these patients to a rheumatologist. Yeah. And so when would we be, we be alerted to the possibility of it being a tendon xanthoma? So in case of uh, a positive family history of uh, hypercholesterolemia, um, and also here you could think of uh, performing a blood test uh, where mainly the LDL cholesterol has high value. So it's above five millimole per liter. 
and also in case of uh, a first degree family relative with uh, cardiovascular disease uh, on younger age, these kind of symptoms, then you should be uh, more alert to uh, this, this problem. Perfect. So we've got clear clinical criteria for making the diagnosis, the localization of the pain, pain that worsens on loading, uh, thickening of the tendon and pain that's present on palpation. And we're going to be thinking about tendons, anthomas and enthesitis. So that's the clinical diagnosis. And that brings us on then to the, the next module, which is that one on imaging. So when should we perform imaging in practice? Yeah, so this is a question we uh, also ask ourselves and we also here extracted all data in the identified randomized controlled trials and we uh, also noticed that um, more than half of the researchers used imaging in the diagnostic process, so 55%. Um, but on the other hand, in the ICON consensus process, Oh, what's, what's ICON? Uh, ICON is the international consensus uh, of experts in the tendinopathy field. Um, and there was a consensus process in Groningen where there was also a consensus about the use of imaging. And only a quarter of this, uh, these experts felt that imaging is necessary for diagnosing tendinopathy. So there's some discrepancy in uh, yeah, the use of imaging in this field. Um, but I think we, in the guideline, we provided clear consensus-based criteria for establishing the diagnosis of Achilles tendinopathy. And related to that, we, uh, well, we advise to proceed with imaging if there's uncertainty about this clinical diagnosis yeah. uh, or if there's an abnormal progression of symptoms. Right. So in, in, a, in a straightforward case where you've got your four clinical criteria and it all kind of adds up, then imaging is not necessary per se. Yeah, exactly. With the exception that thickening could be absent in short living uh, symptoms. So still then it, it wouldn't be necessary to include imaging straightforward, but yeah. Uh, yeah, for the others it works. And then if we assume the case isn't straightforward or there's an unusual clinical course of symptoms and we'd move on to do imaging, what kind of things should be assessed on imaging? So what are the diagnostic criteria then? Yeah, so also these data we extracted uh, and the three most commonly used imaging criteria in the scientific literature for uh, diagnosing mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy where local thickening of the Achilles tendon, uh, a heterogeneous structure with hypoechoic areas, and also the presence of Doppler flow. Right. That's a three, that's a three, three common findings, I guess, if you perform imaging. And then here I'm assuming, just to be explicit, we're talking about ultrasound if we're considering Doppler flow. Yeah. That's true. And most of the studies used ultrasound, so only a few used MRI. Uh, and in that case, you could exchange the hypoagogic areas with an increased signal intensity. Yeah. And then I guess in practice, um, there's a lot of confusion, I would say, based on my experience around the, the insertional with the role of what's going on with the, the haglund morphology? Is there a retrocalcaneal bursitis? 
are those kind of diagnoses that we need to make? Would they have another uh, another treatment? Yeah, so there's currently insufficient evidence to state that the presence of uh, imaging findings has a have a prognostic value on the short or long term, uh, so for the course of symptoms. Um, yeah, and there are no data available for yeah, the prognostic value of, of specific uh, imaging abnormalities such as uh, a lung morphology or a retrocopaneal bursitis or a longitudinal split. Uh, so, yeah, while the working group recognized uh, that these pathological findings may lead to other treatment options, uh, we don't have data demonstrating that these affect treatment response. Oh, that's fascinating. And, and I guess the, a real important message, we see it in other areas of musculoskeletal medicine, sports medicine as well, but the, the, the fact of an absence of imaging findings being correlated with the prognosis, which may be really counterintuitive for patients. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but I think if you well, try to explain this as well and uh, don't rely too much on these image, imaging findings uh, well, in, in the first place and progress with the, uh, well, with the treatment as suggested, uh, as, uh, as we will talk about later on, I think still with these abnormalities, uh, I see a lot of patients still have the ability to improve without other treatments needed. That's a nice positive finish to this first uh, podcast. So I think this brings us to the end of the first episode where we've talked about uh, risk factors, prevention, the clinical diagnosis and the, the imaging. And we're really hoping you'll be looking forward to joining us for the second podcast where we're going to dive into the treatment, both surgical and uh, conservative and then we'll come back there as well and talk about the secondary prevention and long-term prognosis as well. So it's bye-bye for now from us here in the studio in rainy and lockdown Holland. And we look forward to joining you again for the second part of this podcast. Make sure to stay active and healthy. Cheers for now. Bye-bye.